0: Adopting this way of being in the world affords us a sensitivity to the complexity and the diversity that we live amongst, and also affords us a recognition that everything we do matters, everything we do matters, and that, if you will, our fingerprints are on everything, even The fact that we do the things that we believe we have to do, like go to school or pay our taxes, that in the very act of doing that, we are the ones who keep those practices alive, that we aren't insignificant and we aren't being oppressed by, you know, rules and laws. We're keeping those rules and laws alive as we interact with each other every day. That's the voice of
1: Professor Sheila McNamee, and the orientation she speaks of is social constructionism. Sheila is co president of the TAS Institute, and she joins me today with three of her TAS colleagues. I'm Robin Stratton Burkessel, and I'm the host of this show, Positivity Strategist. Now, this season of Positivity Strategist has been a collaboration with the Taos Institute and this episode is the grand finale of our beautiful collaboration. Our topic of these last 11 shows has been to highlight the innovations in social construction as practice and bring them to you. Our podcast guests are Taos associates and contributors to a significant book that brings many more social constructionist practices to public awareness, including chapters from researchers, educators, therapists, organisation development consultants, healthcare professionals, and community development organisers. The book, called The Sage Handbook of Social Constructionist Practice, is available from October 2020. Yes, I have four guests for you today. You're so lucky and I'm so lucky to have had this conversation. So in addition to Sheila, there's Professor Celiani Carmago Borges, Dawn Dole and Alex Arnold. Celiani, along with Sheila, is one of the four editors of the Sage Handbook and Dawn is Executive Director of the Taos Institute and Alex, the Program Coordinator. I invited them all to join me in a reflective conversation about this most unusual year, 2020. With COVID or COVID, keeping us physically distanced and changing our lives in extraordinary, unprecedented, some good, some not so good, and with the increasing unrest, the tensions and protests across the world for social justice, Black Lives Matter, climate change, democracy and governance, political reforms, systems reforms, economic instability, immigrant suffering, and far more. So the invitation is for us to look at this world in 2020 through the orientation of social construction and how we might make meaning out of our experiences. The time is so ripe for conversations that truly matter and seeking to understand difference. Sheila starts
0: our conversation. Um, yeah, I, I would like to say a few things. Um, nobody wants uh, the kind of uh, uncertainty and uh, trauma that we've been experiencing in this calendar year, 2020, uh, in the form of the pandemic, in the form of uh political protests, um, protests about uh, violence towards people of color and, you know, all of the issues globally. Nobody wants to experience any of that. And yet, at the same time, in a odd way, I feel that the confluence of these tragedies um, really has... Highlighted the significance and the importance of the kind of work that we are doing and that we're talking about. Um, let me just give a very small example that, in the grand scheme of all those tragedies that I just mentioned, um, doesn't seem as significant. But it, it's it's where I live, um, and that is in in education in the academic context. And you know, academia. Uh, the way we educate is, has not changed since it it evolved in the industrial era. I mean, prior to the industrial era, only elite boys were educated. And so with industrialization, now everybody, you know, is educated and it's, you know, many people have written and talked about this. So I'm not saying anything new, but it's, it's sort of based on this factory model that Uh, Children are educated in by age, not by ability, simply by age and subjects are separated. So we have silos and and things like that. And so uh, my point is that we have needed a major overhaul of education for a very, very, very long time. And right now we see the terror of People returning to school, you know, young children returning to spaces that don't seem safe. Nationally, in the U.S., we see the return of students to university campuses, and then, you know, being sent home, uh, spreading the virus even more instead of keeping them on campus where they at least could quarantine. and And all sorts of things are happening that are making us look at how we educate and could, could we do this better? You know, how do we connect? So my own experience last March um, was to move all my in-person seminars online where, you know, 20 or 12 people, depending on which seminar I was teaching, a small group sitting around a table, really feeling and being with each other. And then we moved on to Zoom and, um, we couldn't maintain that kind of connection and yet we knew each other well now this semester i'm also teaching online but we're all pitching in there is this already this sense of collaboration that we are in this together and we need to work together and be tolerant and supportive and these are students who haven't even learned these ideas yet but they're already coming with this kind of attitude Um, and willingness to work together in ways that I haven't seen before. And so um, I think that all of everything that's in the handbook, all of the episodes of this podcast series, really uh, it's all coming at a time when it it couldn't be needed more. And that uh, maybe the time has come for this major transformation in how we live and work together yeah
1: thanks for that sheila um alex i know you have a son thomas 10 right so mm-hmm. how is this and and you said that when you were listening to grow and to chateau chateau mm-hmm. um, who both spoke about education and the change you know reflecting a little bit of what sheila's been saying about you know the educational um structure goes back to the factory model um, and yet you you said that those two episodes, specifically on rethinking, reimagining, reevaluating, a restructuring education, really were very powerful for you in view of your own son. So um, I'd love you to say what that meant to you.
2: Yes, thank you. Um, I think for me it was reassuring that to, to hear those episodes because I think all of these ideas were were telling me this is already being done. There are already people rethinking what education should be like. And, and all these ideas are already being explored. So so shifting to being at home, shifting to the virtual learning was a disruption, but um, I didn't feel so isolated. I didn't feel so alone and and in, in this completely new experience. So it was... So, so timely and so welcome because at the times I did get frustrated and I come from a very traditional, you know, French um, education and, and already the system and the school, luckily where my son goes, is very progressive and um, everything is, you know, activity-based and group-based a lot more than I've ever been exposed to. But by my instinct, of course, being at home with him was to be very strict and very caught up in getting the homework done and following the, the guidelines and the rules and when he, you know, having a strict schedule at home and implementing those routines and, um, and I had to really rethink <laughs> What is really important here is it to build collaboration and understanding between him and I and to discover and be curious about what interests him and what motivates him and all these social skills and all these, you know, living together (laughs) skills that we needed to develop. And so, so I think those episodes and just the ideas in general to remove the labels and to tell ourselves different stories and ask mm-hmm. ourselves this, different questions. You know, how do we go about our day to make this a, a meaningful experience? Mm-hmm. And, and really for me, I think it motivated me to yeah, shift my focus and, and really think, what do I want him to remember from this time not next week and not in an academic way, but next summer or a few years from now, when he looks back, what will he remember from his day at school, but also from our interactions together and from his mom, you know, what kind of mom do I want to be during this time? So it was a lot, it was a lot to reconsider. Um, But I chose for a small example of how it almost, I felt like I had permission to do things differently And so we took two hours during the school day on Wednesdays to volunteer to deliver meals to people um, who have been displaced from shelters. And that's my proudest moment as a mom, because he was so excited every Wednesday. He was just like, are we going? Are we going? And he he was just so ready to go. And he's such a social person that, um, of course, we kept our social distance and practiced, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, um, all the safety procedures but but just being there and seeing people who have been relocated and delivering those meals and realizing you know how privileged he is was was very impactful so
3: i just would like to comment on uh, alex stories uh that she just um shared with us and how the episodes inspired her into new reflections and actions and it made me think that um the, this upcoming book of the, the Sage Handbook of Social Constructionist Practice and, some of the, and all the episodes that are illustrating the, some of the chapters uh, all happened before the pandemic. However, when people are reading now and listening now, they can clearly make connections with the life we are having right now. And uh, it's interesting to see that uh, although the chapters don't, yeah, don't mention anything related to COVID, the practices are already there. So the the constructionist professionals and researchers are talking about embracing uncertainty, working with co-creation, using relational responsibility, and then the dominant. Uh, practices, still embracing this illusion of certainty of a predictable, controlled, and stable world. And all of a sudden, we are exposed to all of this uncertainty. And then, as Sheila was saying, uh, more than ever, this relational approach is needed, and then uh, constructionism can help us to respond to this moment. So if you go back to the book and to the episodes, you can get inspired And it can help you reflect on how uh, those practices, those ideas and the illustrations the book uh, brings uh, can kind of help in uh, addressing the life we are living right now. So even though we were like, wow, like we were a little bit um, earlier (laughs) with this book, but I don't think we are, because I think it's still relevant in uh, times of COVID. Yes, there's
0: wide
1: application, whatever the times are. And there's just this particular period, this 2020, and this pandemic that we're experiencing globally, and a lot of the political unrest that's come that surfaced for all kinds of reasons. It's at this point now where we think, well, what are we going to do as humankind to work through these differences and really put into practice the value of relationships? And so, What about the themes that came through or the themes that are coming through for you? Um, I mean, I'm thinking about, we've talked about education as a theme and how we're rethinking education and it's very timely thinking about the community collaborations and how to build community means to dive into stories to un, you know get into the narrative that's underpinning those stories that is creating the difference so how do we live with difference in an embracing respectful harmonious way and so there are a couple of the themes and something for me was that there is a tendency to be moving more into our own bubbles right and yet we talk about you know for example winslade uh, john winslade talked about you know if you want to really get good at narrative mediation and this was the episode that went live just before this one then find a community of narrative mediators and learn from them Pavel Napustil talked about, you know, if you want to get over addiction recovery, work, be with people who have done that before and find out from their stories. So it's almost like find your tribe, find your community who gives you strength in what you're doing. That works both ways, right? So ideologically, we separate into um, bubbles or communities that support our worldview, and yet they can be very opposing worldviews. So do we learn to live with okay, we're going to be at loggerheads here and we'll just do that? Or how do we try to build those bridges or leap those chasms through what we know about relational processes and how we are socially constructing the worlds in which we
0: live? I think that... um you know, what John Winslade said, what Pavel said, you know, about find people who have experienced this and, you know, join with them and learn from them is, is very good advice. But I also think it is absolutely critical that we connect with those who have very different views from our own. And the way to do that, and I think a lot of the, the, uh, people who have spoken and talked about their work in this podcast series have, have indicated this, is to start with respect for the other's coherence, even if it's not co- the position is not coherent to us. So assume, in other words, that everybody has a coherent rationale for their beliefs. And instead of attacking it, Be curious about it. Where does it come from? Because people don't sit around by themselves and dream up these ideas. We know from a constructionist perspective that meaning arises in what people do together. So when, as people interact and engage with one another, they create meaning together. So if somebody has an idea that is, seems evil or wrong, uh, it didn't just pop up from nowhere. It popped up from a community, and can we try to understand how that community thinks? And in in asking those kinds of curious questions and listening respectfully, oftentimes I think what we find is that there's a real vulnerability there for people. That uh, oftentimes the a very what might appear to be a very extreme position is adopted to cover for a feeling of being vulnerable, a feeling of maybe not being safe. And so, you know, I can connect with people who you know, have completely different ideological views than my own if I if I can hold on to that thought, you know, that this person doesn't feel safe, this person feels vulnerable. It allows me to enter into conversation Um, I might be, I might be wrong as we have that conversation. Maybe I come to find that that person doesn't feel uh, unsafe or doesn't feel vulnerable, but at least that gives me a way of connecting that isn't an attack, isn't uh, a critique. And I, I, so I, I think, you know, to, to summarize that we need to reach across, we need to reach out of our bubbles and, and try to connect in ways that create, um, create a way for us to coordinate multiplicity, coordinate multiple views. We're never going to all believe the same thing. We're never going to all stand in the same bubble. So we are left with two choices, to attempt to annihilate each other or to attempt to coordinate and find a way to coexist.
1: And Dawn, you're listening to so many webinars and so are you, Alex, you know, that we put on through the Taos Institute. What are some of the conversations that you're hearing, that you're witnessing, um, that, you know, the associates are talking about? You know, what are other possibilities here as Sheila
4: identifies? Something that's striking me every day, something that comes to mind every day in the last, five months, in addition to COVID is the racial unrest in the United States and around the world. And when I think of how we're dealing with that as a society, as a community, through policing, through um, going back to law and order, we're not moving into a place of community building. And I I have this hope and an image of Blacks and Whites and Browns sitting down at the table together. Anytime something happens that seems to be a police issue or a law and order issue or uh, an issue of unrest and injustice, instead of moving to arresting and getting the guns out we sit together and have open dialogue open conversation um i'm thinking of some of harleen's words that she wrote in the last house institute brief encounter which is a short article that we put in our monthly newsletter and she talks about dialogue and moving to a place where what she says is I speak to invite the other person to speak and I listen to their story and respond to what I've heard and to understand as best I can so it goes back to what Sheila was talking about that we need to be open and curious be present with the others that are experiencing injustice and we need to listen and believe Mm -hmm. their stories um, with an attitude and a tone of openness and curiosity and willingness to work through it together. Um, I just got done teaching or facilitating a seven week white privilege course. And it, it, looks at white privilege from a historical perspective. And it needs to also move into dialogue into our present situation. And the, again, going back to the listening and being together at the table. So I I just keep imagining, instead of police reacting violently to people that are protesting, let's come together and, and find ways to build the community in that way through conversation and understanding.
0: Can I jump in here? I just, you know, of course, Dawn, I agree with everything you say. And at the same time, I'm imagining an audience listening to this and what you say is what we would do. And so the challenge is, you know, how do we get people who, who don't embrace, uh, let's listen generously, let's be respectful, let's engage in dialogue. Um, How do you get them into that space? And I think that we do have, and many people in this podcast series have mentioned, you know, how you prepare people to come into this space and how you invite people to come in. So I think that there are some really concrete, I just want to add this because otherwise it sounds like this idealistic like, oh, we'll all come together and kumbaya, you know, and everything will be great. But th- there we do as um, constructionists have ways of inviting people. And I go back to, you know, what I said before, which is, you know, to s- start with the assumption that people, you know, people who wouldn't be inclined to come together and have dialogue and listen respectfully, et cetera, et cetera. Um, actually, you know, have a point of view that's rational. And, you know, so if if I treat my quote-unquote enemy as if that enemy is a sensible person, I'm more likely to be able to continue an interaction with him or her. And so I think that there's a lot there. And I just want to add that there's on-the-ground real things that we can do to create the um the world that you are imagining in your comments.
3: Yeah, and my hope here is that the sense of urgency that we are living right now with the pandemic will kind of open up the curiosity of people and professionals to search for other ways to create those bridges, to connect people, to have a dialogue. And then again, from a constructionist perspective, we have many um, ways of doing it, of setting up the space of working uh, uh, along in a more participatory way. And the book is profiling many of those uh, approaches, such as appreciative inquiry, action research, the dialogue theories. So um, what we have been working for such a long time, it seems like right now there's a there might be a, a a more curious approach or a curious uh, move into expanding this uh, understanding on how to do it.
1: So one of the things that I think this is really great where we're going with this, and I'm thinking that what our guests and our authors have shared with us in our podcast most of this work is done in a container like you know there's research that's being done there are communities that we're actively working with and and so the spontaneity the um, opportunity to be this way without a framework or a structure or a scaffolding then you know that's I think what Being somebody who has this orientation, there's a huge responsibility to be able to act in this way. And I think, you know, Janet Newbery does it very beautifully in um, she talks about the safety of it. Um, So how you do it safely. And again, this is in a contained context rather than, although she's living in an indigenous um, population just off Vancouver Island. So she talks about being very aware of our own privilege. And you mentioned that Dawn, you know, you were working, doing some training in this. So I think we're really good at training others, facilitating, designing, facilitating experiences, recognizing our own privilege if we are doing this, making sure it's safe for the participants, and that safety has a whole lot of different you know, nuances around that. And again, coming down to our own role. So again, I know I'm being devil's advocate here, but it's like, and, you know, being an appreciative inquiry practitioner, also it's like you be it, you you do the work, but you also do it through... You know your body <laughs> and so again that's something Janet Newberry talks about um, that you feel it in your body and I think when we're experiencing these hideous things that we're witnessing whether we're part of it or not but we can see it on our screens and read it in our newspapers we get this visceral response we get this embodied response so I think our bodies are telling us a hell of a lot you know when we feel sick to the stomach or get hot paying attention to how we are reacting, I think, is a good indicator of, do I shut my mouth? Do I speak up? You know, how do I react, respond in this situation that will be of service or of help? Um, Do I just go and get the coffee or, you know, (laughs) it's, I think that's just, is a huge responsibility.
0: I agree. I think that that's so important. It reminds me of, um, Gianfranco Cecchin, who's a, he um, passed away many years ago, but he was a very well known Italian family therapist who developed what became known as the Milan model of family therapy. And early on, uh, he spoke a lot about sitting with a family and paying attention to what he was feeling, like he was feeling sleepy. Okay, is the family boring him? Well, what what is his part in creating this, this notion that here's a family in distress and yet their story is boring him, or he has a backache. And what does that mean? And not not to go into this kind of psychoanalytic interpretation of the of the bodily experience, but to pay attention to the body and and instead of ignoring it, or filing it away as something absolutely unconnected to what's going on in this particular interactive moment. To, to consider that, that's part of what's happening. And, um, you know, just a little personal exposure here, since we have been in quarantine since March, I have developed lots of uh, physical, things that uh, every time, you know, they, they seem like not a big deal, but then if I talk to my doctor, the first question always is, are you experiencing a lot of stress? And, you know, my feeling is, no, I'm not stressed. I'm enjoying working from home. I can make a cup of tea or throw the laundry into the dryer in between things, in between meetings. And, uh, but I think, (laughs) I think I have not been paying attention. And so I'm, what I'm saying now, I'm saying mostly to myself that I think we do need to pay attention to that, that bodily visceral experience. And so what do we do when we see, as you mentioned, Robin, um, just horrible things happening on the nightly news and we have that visceral embodiment? Um, can we take that and use it to create some small but significant change. And that reminds me of what we always say at the Taos Institute, that we change the world one conversation at a time. So I may not be able to go to Portland, Oregon and you know, part the c- conflicting parties and pr- produce peace, but how I talk, for example, with my students can make a huge difference. And um, so I think, doing what we can do, paying attention to our bodies is is really critical.
4: And Robin, you asked about what are we experiencing with some of our Taos Institute programming, and we host a dialogue with the author each month. And last month, we held a dialogue with the authors from the book, the Taos Institute publication called thriving women thriving world an invitation to dialogue, healing and inspired actions. And Diana Whitney and her um, group of authors, Carolyn Adams-Miller, Tanya Cruz-Teller, several others uh, were on the call with about 100 people and had an amazing conversation looking at how we can use appreciative inquiry, questions and conversations to move to a space of healing um, together. And you know how does that move us then into actions that can help change the world? And um, they looked at it through the perspective of women's issues, but more so as a global uh, family working towards um, really making the world a better place for all um, through the women's issues. So anyway, so that was an, an inspiration and just an amazing conversation um, with that book and the authors.
1: That's wonderful, Dawn. Uh, and that that reminds us that, um, and Mary Gergen talked about this, you know, that we are all stories and we can restory our life. And um, that came up time and time again. What's the narrative that's underpinning your own personal story and creating your identity? Um, so, you know, all of these things are so highly relevant. And I'm thinking too of both David Hooker's episode, which was on um, transform- transformative community conferencing, that was so incredibly powerful, where he uses performance coming back to the notion of feeling it and being it in your body. So David's using performance as a way to, to surface some of these narratives that inform our identity, which may or not be the identity that we choose, but we're, you know, being acculturated into it. And then of course, Lois Holzman talks about play and performance. And she talks about, you know, there's the cognitive, there's a very intellectual part of this, which we're very good at ideas and concepts and theories. um, and looking at these things, and there's also this idea that we need to perform it, <laughs> bring it out. And it's through that performance that we often uncover. Improv is a great way of doing that as well. Um, and I know, Celiani, you're very much into the innovation side of things too. Does performance and play, you know, as a way of um, connecting with these ideas
3: feature in what you do? Well, definitely, definitely. And um, yeah, and one of the the chapters from the book that I wrote together with Sheila, we are also trying to talk about innovation in research. So how can we use more of play and improv and performance to create knowledge? And I think there is no best time than now to to turn it around and to create new performances by performing... uh, together. So what we have been always talking about uh, having a global mindset with a local sensibility or sensitivity, I think now is the best time to apply it. All of us globally uh, are experiencing the same phenomenon, but locally we are in need of different things, but we can have this global mindset and see how can we perform locally New ways of um, of behaving, of uh, living around, and um, and I, I like very much the the, the concept uh, that Sheila wrote about the relational responsibility, and how can we shift the focus on individuals and start looking at uh, how interconnected we are and how we can. Uh, take responsibility for it, and not just as individuals, but the whole system together, affecting one another. So, yeah, I think play, performance, and improvisation uh, is a good way out, a good uh, format of uh, working and creating new new possibilities.
1: And what's fascinating is that that hasn't necessarily been impeded by our physical distancing. If you've noticed what's been going on via the same technology that we're using now, um, you know, the the creativity that has just been pouring out, that you see musicians coming out and dancers and and people performing operas and all kinds of amazing things, you know, just being physically distanced but socially connected through technology.
3: I just want to add to that, Robin, because um, uh, improv can be so challenging in the way that uh, you are creating the moment, right? Very much focusing the present. And because we are living this uncertain time now and we need to recreate and everybody knows that is new for everyone. I think, as Sheila said, there is a, a kind of a willingness to try and to fail and to be together. There's more tolerance. And I have been noticing that also at the university and in other meetings that people are more... They're willing to be there and to do differently without feeling um awkward or they might fail because we are all on the same boat in that trying out new things. So this is the this is amazing to see happening.
0: Yeah, this is I, I would just you know underscore that, that this is the this is one silver lining of this moment, this really tragic and difficult and challenging moment is we are all in that place of uncertainty and so we are willing to make ourselves uh you know open to anything able to improvise vulnerable to each other we don't have to be the all-knowing expert these are all the ideas that we talk about as constructionists you know that instead of living with certainty which is what an individualist worldview. um supports and and is a hallmark of it we are now we live with uncertainty and that is the way the world is i mean we never can predict what's going to happen next and so now we're actually in a situation where we have to learn how to deal with that and
2: have to have to cope with it to me, that uh, reminds me—I don't remember which episode—but one that talks about power differential and you know, creating that safety for everyone to be able to show up um, a, a, on the same level. And and since we're speaking about technology and and everything that's been available, I've noticed that the technology has actually created a bit of that safety, like allowing people to be vulnerable. And because we're all on the screen and we all occupy that same space on the screen. So it puts us all in a room uh, face-to-face too, instead of seeing maybe in a classroom style or even around a board or a conference, a big conference table, you know, um, that I've noticed that people are more willing to own their space and to speak up. I think there I've also noticed some practices where when you join a zoom meeting, there's almost this natural, um, you know, tendency for people to connect with each other and check in, just like we did today, you know, check in with each person and really giving space to each person, which doesn't necessarily happen when you enter a, a conference room or a meeting in person. Um, and also some, um, I think some gestures and practices that I've noticed, like at so many meetings I've joined have started more and more to, to, with, um, you know, you know, coming into the space, acknowledging we're all on Zoom, probably way too much, but let's take a break. Let's take some deep breaths and doing, you know, some meditations at the beginning of meetings. I found more and more common. Uh, I've seen people using a lot of, you know, hand gestures or hand on the heart. So I think people are naturally developing these new practices to that are, I found very powerful. So almost more powerful than sometimes when you're in a space that can be intimidating or with people in the room that have you know more presence and, and an intimidating uh, energy to them I found that thankfully the technology has opened up a lot a lot of ways for people to connect and more people I think to uh, removing the you know transportation or scheduling uh, struggles that that some people have to join things that maybe weren't available to them before
3: yeah I would like to add um to that Alex, like uh, related to technology because um, also I think it's very important. It's very important to say how uh, the pandemic also is showing the the unequal world we are living in. So we are talking from a very privileged position, right? That we. We can play around that and we have uh, the safety the safety of having our jobs our homes and everything and we know that there are many people out there um, who must deal with food and job um, insecurities but still with technology there is a movement happening around there and i was thinking right now like um In Brazil, with the pandemic starting and all these uh, unemployed people and uh, struggling with uh, daily needs, uh, a a strong movement around the the right of basic income that it was already there, but really not unfolding, all of a sudden was approved uh, nationally. So people started having the right to have this basic income and so technology is also playing a role in helping people organize themselves and go after uh, some rights they believe they have or some yeah ideas or values that is it's easier to connect and create this big wave
1: yeah of course that reminds me too of um gail simon and uh, leah Salter, who talked to us about the transmaterial worlding which was a concept new to me. But then when I, you know, had the conversation and read about it, I realised that, of course, you know, we have our relationship with our digital devices. We have our relationships with trees and nature. And and so, you know, we do live in this world that it's full of um, animate and inanimate um, objects <laughs> that, you know, the rocks are Billions of years old and yet they're continually shaping and forming. So it really gives another perspective. And so, you know, the fact that we are now in a situation where we're may for many of the population may not have embraced technology through, you know, the digital tools, are now doing it and finding that they can they can manage with that. So I think, you know, again, thinking of Mary Gergen's lovely quote, um, and she was talking in terms of like the relational aspect and it applies here too, that, you know, things can always be otherwise, (laughs) right? It doesn't have to be the way it is or the way I want it to be. Things can be otherwise. And that one of the themes that came through to me in listening to these remarkable um, human beings is that, um, that finding social construction as a worldview, as an orientation was liberating, right? It gave them that the world doesn't have to be that way. I can reauthor my story. I can do things differently. I can listen differently. I can take action differently. And so I think that that sense of liberation which is very empowering at the individual level and recognizing that it's not all about me, but it's in the relationship that I have with others. And so Celiani and Sheila, who are our resident experts, maybe you'd like to weigh in on that sense. And, and Dawn, I mean, all of us, you know, what the experience of feeling liberated through having this,
3: this perspective on the world or on life. Well, it, it's it's liberating and can also be a curse. <laughs> you are eternally responsible for everything <laughs> you are thinking and doing, and uh, connected. So it's it's a commitment that you you make with yourself when you understand the the rela- relationality of the world and the the interdependency of. Uh, among people and the material and immaterial world and how you know whatever you say and how you say is helping to connect or to disconnect. So you are constantly attentive to this process, uh, which is so powerful. I would add, I would agree
0: with that. It's liberating and it's also a curse in a way, but, um, but I don't feel the curse so much and the the ability to, well, look, I mean, we have to take a step back and say, none of us are saying this is truly the way to be in the world and that this is the right perspective. We're not even in that conversation about right and wrong and this theory versus that theory, which one explains human behavior best that's not even an issue. The issue is adopting this way of being in the world affords us a sensitivity to the complexity and the diversity that we live amongst. And also affords us a recognition that everything we do matters, everything we do matters. And that if you will, our fingerprints are on everything, you know, that that even, you know, the, the fact that uh, we do the things that we believe we have to do, like go to school or pay our taxes, that in the very act of doing that, we are the ones who keep those practices alive, that we aren't insignificant and we aren't being Oppressed by, you know, rules and laws, we we're keeping those rules and laws alive as we interact with each other every day, and so um, I I think that that way of approaching our lives is so powerful. And again, I just want to emphasize, it's not a fact, it's not a truth, but it is a choice of how we live our lives. And I think it's a very powerful one because we don't feel um, impotent to make change. We feel that we can we can make a change, even if it's a small one, even if it's only in our little bubble. But you know, just <laughs> we use the virus as a metaphor here. You know, you have your little bubble, and one person leaves that bubble, and all of a sudden, it's spreading elsewhere. Let's think about. These ideas about collaboration and uh, being relationally sensitive and relationally responsible as being like that virus that, you know, you do it where you can do it, knowing that some people in that little bubble are going to move out and, you know, bring these ideas to others. And it's just going to grow and proliferate in that way, sort of like, you know, the pebble dropping in the water and all the rings emerging from it. And
4: Sheila, that reminds me of the beginning of the Taos Institute, you know, 20, some 27 years ago now, almost, that it was a small group of people that came together for the first time to talk about these ideas, um, how social construction influenced and informed the various practices, and then those seven peoples conversations and exploration together expanded to a group of maybe 50. And then it turned into a group of 300 that gathered for a meeting and then those spread. So over 27 years, these ideas and practices um, in the various disciplines and domains have expanded exponentially, um, just bubbling out into the world. And so I'm so grateful for the Taos Institute for that process and that relational sensitivity to uh, making the world a better place through our relationships and our dialogues.
0: How
1: beautifully said from the executive director Dawn Dole. (laughs) And Dawn, you've been in each of the episodes sharing some of the the, uh, opportunities that exist by some of the courses and the webinars and the uh, trainings and the classes that are offered at Taos so um, people will continue to find those as they they look at the different episodes um, on our sites. Speaking of our sites I want to jump in to say how grateful we are for your interest and continued support and let me remind you to hear every show in this season dedicated to social constructionist practice and to listen to my rich conversations and interviews with 11 Taos associate authors and to access helpful links to their works, please visit positivitystrategist.com slash podcast, where you'll see all our seasons presented, and this one is Season 5, Social Construction. So, dear collaborators, as we bring our podcast season to a close, what other thoughts, feelings, ideas
0: might we want to share. Um I I would like to as a closing remark just thank you Robin profoundly for your commitment to this project and your outstanding ability to interview people and you know be in conversation with them and and um it's this kind of partnership. I, I've said this elsewhere, Don and Celiani have heard me say this, but um, it's the, the partnership with you is iconic in terms of what the Taos Institute stands for. You find a way to partner with some, someone who has a skill that you don't have. You know, none of us have this skill of uh, doing podcasts. Um, maybe we could develop it, but Um, but you do and in in partnering we've had these incredibly rich conversations I think which in some ways go beyond the book you know the the book the the chapters are there they're great but when you can talk with the author and hear the passion and the commitment and the little nuanced details and and stories um, that you know don't get into the chapter uh, it's just so powerful so I would like to really thank you for for working with us on this and just being so great.
1: Yeah, I think it's those little stories <clears throat> that are so meaningful when people share their own, you know, anecdotes. <laughs> um that's the fun part. It's it it's um reading is one thing and that's just one modality, but hearing is a a much more intimate modality. So you 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 um you know, you seek to just dive a little more deeply into, you know, what inspires, what moves, what gives hope, um, what people are grateful for, and and what are the things that maybe worry them. So, you know, yeah, great. Thanks.
3: Thank you. Yeah, I make Sheila words my words. (laughs) (laughs) It's been an incredible journey, uh, Robin, being with you and translating this book in different formats and expanding the conversation. It has been so powerful. And uh, yeah, so who knows what will happen, what new realities will be created with this combination of the podcast, Mm. the books, and more conversations to Mm. to happen.
2: I love what Sheila said, um, that, you know, the takeaway is really that nothing is too small, that any word conversation, um, can be the start of a spread (laughs) and and it's Mm -hmm. such a powerful message you know sometimes it's intimidating to think of you know a book chapter or even a podcast and of course our our guests are such incredible Mm um you know researcher practitioners they do such big things and i think for me is um, walking away with the idea that all of us you know no matter our experience as long as we're open to these ideas we can have a small impact that trickles into into something big just like this podcast you know we we're here a year later after an idea and and here we have this incredible podcast series mm. which I, I love to think that it keeps living it keeps mm. living and growing and it's not over yeah. it's really just the beginning of something so it's great really great thank you everyone. that's lovely thank you
1: i'm kind of bastardizing a quote here um, by way of conclusion Um, And again, it actually comes from Janet Newbury, and she's talking about community um, building practices. But I think we could talk about, I mean, it is all about community building, I think, whether you're talking about, you know, in your organization, in your school, in your family, um, they're all communities. So it's this question, and she has it in the book. How can community building practices be done in a way that attend to difference and are genuinely committed to consider power relations and how they play out when working amidst differences? Learning to live with difference in a caring way um, would be wonderful is possible.